0: Well, you know, teaching kids how to drive can be challenging. It, um, I know from experience that there seems to be this fine line that while they're driving uh, to lovingly encourage them without discouraging them. And on the other hand, to to, to uh, instruct them sternly enough so that they don't kill you, right? So there's, there's the tension between the two. It amazes me, really, to be honest with you, that when you think about it, that your children have really been observing you drive their entire life before they ever get behind the wheel. So for about 15 years, they've been watching you do this. Uh, Start the car, back up, drive away, uh, park somewhere, uh, then do the whole thing back and, and come back. They've literally watched this thousands of times. And yet when you put them in the seat for the very first time, it's like everything is new. You hand them the key what is this? What's the key to the car? But what does it do? Well, it starts the car. How does it do that? You stick it in the ignition. Where's that? That little hole right there. And so you're trying to teach all things. It's as as if they've never seen any of this before. It's all brand new, which goes to show that observing something and doing something are two completely different things. Jesus understood this principle quite well. When we get to chapter 9 in Luke, Jesus' public ministry is basically halfway over. He had a public ministry consisting of about three years, and this is about the year and a half point. For a year and a half, Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons, he's performing all kinds of signs and wonders, and now it's at the halfway point. And so Jesus understands that during this time, his disciples have been observing all of it, But observing is not enough, because in another year and a half, he will die, he will be buried, he will raise on the third day, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he will rule uh, from from his his Father's right hand. He knows his time is coming, which means when he leaves, his disciples are going to be left behind. And they are to continue his ministry. They They are to be his hands, and they are to be his feet. So now is a good time for them to begin to put into practice what it is that they have been learning. And this is a wonderful opportunity to rem- remind ourselves of why you and I still remain here. You know, isn't it nice to see COVID going goodbye? Unless you're in some other state or something, of course. But, but here uh, in, in the great state of Florida, amen, uh, we, it is going, and thank God, we see it kind of going away, and we hope that it goes away altogether but in the bottom, uh, in the midst of all this, people want to travel. They want to go on a cruise. My wife, specifically, wants to go on a cruise. And, and, and people want to go and travel and do everything. And the summer is here. And People want to go to the beach. And they've got all these things that they ultimately want to do. And I think it's very good and needed for us to remind ourselves in the midst of all this excitement that there is work for us to do. That there's work for us to do. That we are the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ and that we still remain for the purpose of advancing his kingdom and his purposes. And so when we are reminded of that, this text can be very encouraging to us because it reminds us that it reminds us of what we are given and what we need to fulfill the work that Jesus has given us. So we want to work at, look at those two things before we take of the Lord's Supper this morning. By the way, we are taking of the Lord's Supper at the end. We don't do it like we used to do it. I kind of like that, not passing out in everybody's hand in the bread, uh, to be honest with you. But at this particular point, uh, we are doing it this way. So at the end of the service, make sure that you go out and you grab one if you, if you haven't had that so we can observe uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But let's look at two things this morning that I think that are going to be helpful to us. First of all, what we are given What we are given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1, if you will, and it says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus, in order to equip his disciples for the work, he he gave them two things that they desperately needed. He gave them power, and he gave them authority. Now, the word power here doesn't speak of a physical power that comes really from from brawn and from muscle, per se. That's not really what he's talking about. It's more of a spiritual power that comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We should be really, we're we're familiar with this word power because it's the Greek word dunamis, and we we actually had seen this word at the very end of chapter 8. In chapter 8, there was a woman who had this issue of bleeding. You remember this. For 12 years, she had this chronic condition where she had a flow of blood for 12 years, and she had been to all the doctors. She had done everything she could to be healed. She couldn't do anything, but then one day she heard about Jesus. She heard about his miracles that he performed, and she believed that if she could just touch him, that she herself would be healed. And so she goes to him, and she touches him kind of secretly, if you will, and, and touches the hem of his garment And she's healed. Instantly, the flow stops. And and Jesus stops as well. And and he says, he says, power has gone out of me. He recognized that power had gone out of me. It's the same work dunamis here. So that same power that went out of him that healed this woman now was going to go out of Jesus to these disciples so that they now have the power to do the same type of miraculous healings that Jesus Christ had done over the last year and a half. And so he gives them power, but he also gives them authority. And that's important. Power without authority doesn't do much. You can go to a local neighborhood and perhaps there is a gang that wants to take over and and have their way within that particular community. They may have the power to do it, but they lack the authority to do it. So if they try to enact their power without the authority, that's an abuse of power. Warren Wearsby says, power is the ability to accomplish a task, and the authority is the right to do it. They needed both the power and the authority to do it, and we knew that where would they get it? Well, Jesus Christ. We know that he has authority. We already saw him have authority over the created world when he ceased, when He, when he stilled the storm and the winds and, and the waves, and, and then we saw especially his power and authority over what? The demonic forces when he was able to cast out a legion of demons out of the man that was there at the, in the region of the Gerasenes, and they leave him and jump into a herd of pigs, run off the cliff, and they drown themselves into the Sea of Galilee. He had authority over those demons. And now he is giving them the same authority passing on so that they would do precisely the same things that Jesus had done, that is, do miraculous signs and wonders, cast out demons, as well as have authority over supernatural forces. So that's pretty clear what's happening within the text. We don't have to manipulate it or change it. That seems to be very clear. But what we find here in the text of Scripture is this, or what we find ourselves asking is, is this the same power and authority That is given to believers today and you know already that we're headed into a source of division right even perhaps even for people who are here automatically i know that i'm in trouble because half are going to say yes we have the same power and authority others are going to say no we don't have the same power and authority and you say well pastor mike what do you think i would answer that well not exactly kind of sorta not really but yes That's how I would answer that question. And so here's what I would say to you today is the way I explain this, you may disagree, but I love you. Um, that's okay, but my job is to give you the clearest understanding of what the whole council, biblically, theologically, and pragmatically, what, the, what we know to be true. And let me try to hit on this just for a minute. Before we talk too much about that, about the authority and power, and is it the same that the disciples were bestowed on? Remember, it was the 12 here, just the 12, the 12 apostles. That's important to keep in mind. But before he does this and before he, uh, we move on there, we have to recognize what is secondary and what is primary. We read this and we see that, that, that he did say you're going to go out and you're going to perform miracles and you are going to cast out demons, but that is secondary to what was primary. These things were for the purpose of doing what? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is why Jesus himself came. He says that in the book of Mark. I came to proclaim the kingdom of God. See, see what I did there? I just re- quoted Jesus. And so this is primary and so what we find is that these other things, the casting out of demons and the, and the healing of the sick was secondary. However, though they were secondary, they were necessary. Now, follow along with me on this. What I mean by that is simply this. They validated the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. When we see in the Old Testament the fall, and all the world falls underneath a curse, what happens? Everything goes to pot, Disease enters into the world. Death enters into the world for the first time. And so what we find is we know, as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the Proto-Evangelium, we find out that there is going to one that is going to come to crush the serpent and the work of the serpent. So what's going to happen is now the world has spiraled down into under this curse. There is going to be somebody who will come and relieve us of that curse. He is not only going to now uh, uh, restore people, but he is going to restore all of creation. You get this, right? So one of the things that it says in the Old Testament time and time again is that when the Savior comes, whoever that is, you're going to know because he is going to have compassion on those who are sick. And he is going to heal those who are ultimately sick. Now, stop and think about that. There had been miracles that had occurred all the way from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? We see the creation story. That's the first God of miracles. God is a God of miracles. Would you agree? Of signs and wonders. And so he begins to heal people. We see signs and wonders. We go through the Old Testament. We see Elijah. We see the prophets. We see all of these things happening. And then at certain times we see them to a greater degree, to a greater intensity, as with Elijah and Elisha. Are you still with me? Other times it goes for a long period. You don't see much of it all. Then it pops up again. But never in human history did it ever happen like the time of Christ. Ever. The intensity. And the, the, the frequency of miracles, of the healing of the sick, had never been seen like this before. It was the whole point. Jesus wanted to remove all doubt that he was the fulfillment of the Messiah. It was demonstrating that he was who he said that he was. Old Testament prophets said he would come and he would heal the sick. And Jesus was doing it. In fact, when he would go to town to town, there were some towns that basically he was eradicating almost every type of sickness possible and imaginable. So he, he, he did this to validate Jesus' ministry. Second, to validate his message. When Jesus came across and he began to teach, and that's what much of what he did, he would teach and preach, people are trying to figure out, is he truly of God or not? Remember, there were people constantly during this time coming forward saying that they have a word from God, saying that they're people from God. Well, how, how would you ever be able to determine that? You live in amongst a group of people who believe there is one God, but how do you know if their message is from God or not? One of the greatest ways is through miracles, through the supernatural. God, you know that it's a message of God because they are acting in a supernatural way because God is supernatural. Miracles are things that are beyond the natural. You get that, right? They are beyond the regular laws of uh, 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 that, that govern this world. And so who has that power beyond in the supernatural? God. So when they would come and they would, perform these supernatural works, and they would understand that they must be from God. Therefore, their message must be from God. So, it had to be big. It had to be huge. It had to be saturating. So, it was validating that Jesus Christ, his ministry, and his message. Now, Paul writes and says the same thing, but what he says is, he who was also an apostle, along with the other 12, that it validated his ministry and his message, as well as being an apostle. Now understand, an apostle was an official representative of Jesus Christ. There was the Twelve, and then, of course, of course the apostle Paul. So what they happen is, that is a different place than you and I. You and I did not write any of the books of the Bible, agreed? You and I did not see Jesus walk with Jesus for a period of three years. You and I did not, did not, were not given at that particular point those particular gifts and abilities as they were playing out. I don't think any of us were. And so all of this is going on and they're validating. So this is what Paul writes, Romans 15, 18 through 19. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all excuse me, in all around of Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ that He was given. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, do you see the two things? Works, signs, wonders, proclaiming, the gospel, what did they do? They validated his ministry and his message. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he begins to talk about the other apostles. He's included in this. He says, the signs of true apostles were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He says, true apostles those that had been set aside to be the official spokespersons of Jesus Christ and the formation of the early church, who were they? These apostles, they came with signs and wonders Everybody evident, that was evident for everybody who was around and everybody who saw and everybody who ultimately heard them. Such miracles, and this is where all of a sudden everyone's like, this is good, now we hate you preachers. So this is the point, all right? So this is the point. These signs and wonders are no longer need as a form of validation anymore. Oh, I was expecting more to get out for, for, for that. So let me, okay, let me make sure we're clear. Uh, they're not needed anymore as a form of validation. Why? Because when people come claiming to be from God or claiming to have a word from God, how do we validate that? Through the completed word of Jesus Christ. Through what we call the completed canon. We begin to see this, so theologically we understand that so far. We understood what was going to have to happen that he was reversing the curse that's why he had to validate his ministry biblically we understand it are you guys still tracking with me biblically we understand it because we see it in the word of God but what do we see as Acts begins we see this explosion of miracles signs and wonders why because they are sent out to be able to take the gospel these particular twelve and many more but specifically those twelve to be the official spokesperson of Jesus Christ when they come to different groups they need to affirm and know for sure that this is from God, so what do they do? Perform signs and miracles. Well, Once they begin to go to the Jews, and and they go to the Gentiles, and they go to the Samaritans, and they go to all these other subgroups, there is now the gospel has spread out. There is now no longer any need for these signs and wonders to authenticate it. Why? Because as these men were living, they were writing the very books of the Bible that we have. So they're writing the books of the Bible that we have, that you and have. They begin to die off, leaving their writings for the churches, which were now being written and and, and sent around and shared around to all the different churches at that time, until finally you get to John at the end. But what happens is when you're studying through the book of Luke, you begin to see less and less miracles taking place through the book of Acts to the end. And then in the, in the apostles' writings, the epistles, as well as, as the, the prison epistles and the pastoral epistles, there's almost no mention at all. In fact, Paul, when he's writing to his beloved Timothy, who he loves as his own son, he knows he's got a rumbly in his tumbly, and he doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, your stomach is healed. Be gone, demon. He says, drink a little wine because that's going to work as a medicine to be able to help your stomach just a little bit. So we begin to see and the reason why is there is a decrease in signs, there's a decrease in signs and wonders as there is an increase in revelation of God's word. Then when we finally get to the book of Revelation, What do we see? We just don't know it. Even in the early church, we're not seeing it, listen, in the same capacity or intensity that we saw amongst Jesus, uh, specifically 12 apostles during that particular apostolic age. Now, does this mean that we don't believe in miracles? Not at all. God God is a God of miracles. My salvation was a miracle. He doesn't have to to, to heal my foot for me to believe that he's a miracle worker. I know that he's a miracle worker because he changed me in the image and likeness of Christ. I'm not quite there yet, but he's working on it, and he's working on you. But we believe, we, we know, we've seen people who have had cancer, and we've seen the x-rays of tumors all over their body, and we've prayed. And we've prayed to God, and they come back and they go, Doctors, we can't explain it. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible. There's no cancer in this person again. And, and, those, and we've seen that happen. Have we seen it a lot? No. Is, is it an everyday occurrence? No. Is there somebody in any church anywhere that we go to and we're like, hey, man, my neck hurts? This is me speaking, by the way, because of my neck problems. And my, my neck hurts. Hey, where's the guy that heals? Where is that guy, by the way? I'm still looking for him. It, it, we, we don't have that, but God still performs miracles. I believe that God can give somebody the, the, the gift of speaking in tongues, especially in a foreign land. If they're in a foreign land and there's no way to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have heard from missionaries that, that they were able to speak in a way that they in a language that they never knew in order for the gospel to be able to go forth. God is God, He can do what He wants, where He wants, when He wants. But theologically, biblically, and pragmatically, somebody cannot hold to, I believe, honestly, that these things are still taking place in the way they were at the time. It's inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture, and it's inconsistent to even what we are able to observe. I love all of you. All right. Good night. All right. No, I'm just kidding. So the next part is that's how it is not the same. Now, do we pray for the sick? Yes. Do we believe God can perform miracles yes can God do supernatural things absolutely yes but it is not needed in the same way because we have the the validating tool that we have is the word of God and so now the question is okay if we're not like it if it's not the same power and authority in what way that it is in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ see here's what I think happens the moment that I say that people are like oh I kind of like the signs and wonders part so much better but the truth of the matter is, is what God does is he has given each of us the power and the authority to be able to preach the gospel. Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, he commands the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait. He says there, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. He goes, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit which will give you power. You're going to receive that power. Then he says, as as well, in in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, there's another source of power, not only the Holy Spirit, but the Word of God. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the power of God dwells within you. And every time you preach and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God goes forth. And you have the authority to be able to speak on his behalf. Why? Because it was given to you. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, he he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples to all nations. He says, all authority has been given to me. Now in commanding you to go. I'm giving you the authority. You have the authority to now speak the gospel to those who are around us. This is so important for us to understand because oftentimes we feel so intimidated about ministry. If we feel so intimidated about teaching a class or sharing the gospel with a friend, we're so afraid that if we do, we may make a mistake or we're not gonna do it right. And what God is assuring you is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need to be an effective witness for Christ. If you've been born again, then you know enough of the gospel to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you won't do it powerless because the Holy Spirit abides within you. And when you speak it, the power of God goes forth. You speak it in power, but that word is power. It is doing something in the heart, in the mind, in the life of that individual. So understand that. And it's going to bring us to the second point. Second point is very short. Second point is simply this, is that is what we have. That's what we received, right, from Jesus Christ. That's what we have been forgiven. Number two, what we need, we see in the text of Scripture. Well, wait a minute. If we've been given everything we need, then how can we need something else? Well, let's look at the text. Look at verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Now he's instructing them what to do. And basically what he tells them is, hey, y'all don't bring anything. Now again, this verse has caused a lot of confusion in the church. Let me try to clear it up for you. People will sit there and go, see, you don't need no seminary education. You don't need any of that. Pastor Mike, you wasted a lot of time and money. Sorry, bro. It's, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. You wasted all of your time. You don't need any of that. All you need is the Spirit. All you need is the Word. You don't need anything else. You don't even. You don't have to fundraise. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Just go. Just trust Jesus. This is this is people who are anti-preparation, anti-education, and anti-training for pastors and missionaries. Now it's interesting because you actually, I actually hear of more than that than what you might imagine. But let me just tell you to to. To interpret this text that way is terrible exegesis. Okay, let me explain why. First of all, this is a test run. This is a short-term mission trip. This is a, hey guys, I want you to take a couple days and I want you to go and this is what I want you to be able to do. I want you to proclaim the gospel. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast out demons. But this is a test run. Go and do, let's see how you do. You don't need to take a whole lot with you. Don't take much with you. When we go on a short-term mission trips, we don't load up a U-Haul. We just take a backpack. That's all we do. We take a certain amount of money. That's it. We'll go And we just know, hey, you can survive anything for a week, right? And so we kind of go off not a great deal of preparation. But then something happens in Luke chapter 22. And Luke chapter 22 is when Jesus is preparing his disciples and other followers of Jesus Christ in the broader sense of disciples. And he's going to send them out okay? This is them preparing them of what they're going to do after he's gone. And Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35, let me read it for you. He said, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? You know what he's referring to? Luke chapter 9. He goes, when I sent you out with nothing, he goes, "did did you lack anything? Keep that in mind. Then he says next, he said said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So before he says, don't bring anything. This time he says, hey, you need to bring all the stuff that I told you not to bring the first time. So what happens here? What's going on? It's something completely different that Jesus is doing. He's in essence saying, hey, for short term and what you're doing here, you may not need all this, but guess what? When long term... There is some preparation that goes involved in all of this, and there are things that are wise that you can do to prepare for the journey. He's not anti-planning, okay? But there's something else that's going on. Jesus is trying to do something here. What is he doing? He's trying to build their trust. We have all we need, but the one thing we often lack is trust in Jesus and trust in what God has given us. And trust in the power and the authority of his word and the gospel that he has given us. We don't trust it. Oftentimes what we do is we, he he, he even says there, he, he sits back and he says, you went out, he says, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Jesus is saying, you've got everything you need. And by the way, if you go and you did need something, even as you're going, I'll provide for you then. You just need to trust me. So many parents oftentimes are going, how do I raise my kids? What do I teach them? What do I do? Here's a great start. Saturate their entire life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're worried about your neighbor and you're worried about your friend and I thank God that you are. And you're thinking about what you can do and what you can say and all these other kinds of things. And what I'm saying to you is trust God, that the greatest thing that you can do to anyone around you in an act of love to bring about the greatest amount of change is to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So what do we do with this? You and I, we need to start sharing at least, yes? But what this has done for me is it's just rejuvenated me more than ever before i know our elders are more rejuvenated i know our staff is more rejuvenated than ever before we're coming out of COVID in this time where god was still working and i'm being reminded of that every single day because people will even come to the church and say hey i got saved by watching a a, a sermon on the internet and they end up coming and i'm like god can work on the internet that's amazing i thought only the devil did that and so so and so finally, these people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But what it's done is, and a lot of people are like, what do we do? Our country's different. It's out of whack. People are divided. People are this. And I just sit there and say, this is what I do. I double down with the gospel. We need to double down. You and I, individually, we need to double down in our sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our consistency with it. And in our intensity with it. We need to be going and and doing it, but we also need to be doing it together. Let me share you kind of how very quickly how we're doing this or seeking to be able to do this together. I need to go very quickly. Three things. Number one, do you remember we started a little while ago this thing called a building campaign? Anybody remember that? In the history of bad timings, it was literally the worst bad timing thing. Hey, we're going to build COVID. All right, COVID comes, and you're like, okay, well, let's back off that just for a moment, all right? And do you remember? Some of you were here with that, and what did I even say at the time? I sat there and said, hey, guys, we don't know what this is. We don't know what your needs are. Forget about the building. Forget about it. Work, serve, love, get the money, give it to other people who are that. We just didn't know what it was going to be. Well, now, all this time later has come. And what's happened is people have come back to church. This is a big vacation week and people are just traveling and we've heard from that. They're doing vacations. Summer doesn't necessarily count. But what we've had is now this huge influx of people have come back. We're in the exact same position that we were before all this started. And you remember, we started talking about building a building for what purpose? Just simply to be good stewards of what God has entrusted us with. We wanna have places and locations where children can be taught the word of God to be discipled, where people, there can be enough room. Have you seen in the last couple weeks, and this isn't always the case, but sometimes you're like, there ain't no seat in there, ain't no place to go. Well, we have an overflow, mm, great. And then we've got other people who go, well, they come to the next service and then people are sitting on top of each other. And it's very, very awkward to worship that way. And so, so what, what I'm saying is, here's what I'm suggesting is, where, where are we in the project pro- process? Here, here's where we are. All the plans are done. We have all the plans, all the architectural writings. They're all done. They're ready to go. Here we go. Here's one bad thing that's happened. That $3 million building is now a three-point-plus-million-dollar building. It's gone up. So give more. No, that's not what, that's not what the point is. That's not what I was going to say <coughs> at all. Um, so what, what we're going to say, though, is so we are really blessed with our elders. One is Ronnie Jones, Matt Leinbach. These guys build for a living. And they build a lot, multi-millions and millions of dollars every single year. And uh, they're not tithing off that, or we would just have, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't right. That's, <laughs> that's not your money, brother. I forgot, it's your company's money. But, but what they've said is, they said, Mike, here's what we need. We just need to be patient. Everything that we can project, those prices are going to come down. They can't sustain. Be, just be patient it'd be a bad steward for us to bite off another million dollars when we can wait and be able to see that we believe that that's going to be able to come down. Remember last week, wait on the Lord, just wait on the Lord, but we need to be actively waiting. (laughs) And that means right now is the time for us to give to that to give to that so that when that flag is given and they're literally Ronnie said this we're to look at this month by month by month didn't you tell tell me that we're to look at this month by month by month to be able to analyze to know when it's time for us to pull the trigger and for us to be able to move forward with that for the purpose of stewardship of what God has called us to do we believe that it's essential for that got it? All right, so we need to continue to get, We need to give. If you stop giving, praise God, but we need to get We need to get the money in there so when it's time, we go ahead and we have a time to do it. Second thing that is really important, and I'm excited about sharing this with you, as you guys know, that we tried in an attempt to plant a church a couple of years ago. It did not go the way that uh, any of us had planned or any of us had wanted. Some of that has to do with oversight of me and leadership and things that I didn't know that now I know. Then I didn't know, and we as, as, as elders now know. We have an opportunity now to actually plant another church about an hour away from here in Darien, Georgia. And uh, you say, well, yeah, nope, sorry, not down in South Jacksonville. Some of our South Jacksonville folks that drive up, we'll work on that, we'll work on that. But in, in, Darien, in Darien, Georgia. And it just so happens, we sat there and said, okay, well, how did this come about? Some of you might know the name, name of a man by the name of Nathan Pittman. Nathan Pittman was a youth pastor here at this church I brought in, he served here for several years. He then left and then we basically planted him and supported him to go and do a church revitalization up in Montana. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Three, great. Okay, so I'll, f- I'll keep filling you in. So he went up into Montana. He took a very small dying church in a town of about 350 people of eight people. And over a decade, they now run 150 people, which is impressive when your town runs 350. And so there's about 150 people there. Well, God began to move in his heart because his family is getting older. His mom and dad, his wife's mom are getting older. They can't take care of themselves. He believing the word of God, which says, if you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever believe that he could not stay in a place and not try to approach and to be able to help his family. So he moved down to the Georgia area. One thing's happened to another. He's gonna share this with you on the 27th, okay, in two weeks, he's gonna share this with you, but he ended up coming, things did not work out the way that we planned, God laid on his heart and our heart simultaneously that this is a desperate place that needs a Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching church. And so for about an hour from here, we believe, elders believe, all in agreement that God is leading us to help plant that church. Financially, even, you wanna drive an hour on Sunday morning, there and back, we, we've got a place for you as well. So that's the second thing we are doing, and he's gonna be coming, he's gonna be speaking. Now there's a third thing, and this may not seem as grand, but... It's something that I really want you to take to heart as your pastor. Um, On the 27th, that night, um, Jared and I are going to be leading uh, kind of a revamp of our connections ministry here. That means when people come in and they drive into your parking lot, um, uh, what happens from that point? What happens when they come into the church? What happens when they come to the front door? What happens when they come and sit down? What happens when they leave? Our jobs, evangelistically, is to connect with those folks when they come in. It's our job. I think I've made a huge mistake. You want to know what that mistake is? Here's what I think that mistake is. The biggest mistake that I made is I pushed so hard for you all to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've even said times that, hey, guys. Inviting people to church isn't sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to open your own mouth, and you've got to actually have the words come out and share that gospel. And that is part true. But inviting people to church and making sure they come and they feel welcome and connecting them in a loving, caring way, that's a part of sharing the gospel as well. It's sharing and caring and loving for those individuals that God has entrusted us with. And so what we wanna be able to do is my goal is to make sure and Jared's goal and our churches and elders goal is to make sure that anybody who walks here in this church has a war, is greeted warmly and is greeted with a warm, meaningful conversation. That's what we wanna be able to do because that's who you are. So what we need to do is we need to get the organizational part to utilize people just like you to be the church that we know that we want to be able to be. Do not underestimate that people determining whether they come to your church, they make up that decision in the first seven minutes that they pull into the parking lot, first seven minutes. And so what we want to be able to do, we're not pragmatic people, we're gospel-driven people, but guess what? We could preach the gospel all day long, but if we're not taking care of those details, then we're kind of dropping the, we're kind of dropping the ball. And so what I want you to do is if you love to engage, if you love to talk to people, if you love to reach out, maybe you've been one of those that are like, hey, this is really what our church needs, I want to be a part of, let me encourage you to be there on the 27th. Sound good? Sound good? Let me finish with this, and then we're going to take it to the Lord's Supper very quickly. At the very end of this, if you've read in the Scripture, it, it goes like this. It says, and wherever they do not receive you... Okay, excuse me, verse four. And wherever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Why does he tell them to stay in the same house? I think for two reasons. Number one, is because they could stay in one house and go, mm, I don't like the bed. This guy's got a better bed. Hey, I'm leaving you to go to this other person. Everybody's heart is broken over that point and that's just not a good thing. So he tells them to stay in the same place. Second reason he tells them to stay in the same place is because during that time, culturally, you are not to stay in one place for very long. So what he's telling them to do is don't stay long, why? There's an urgency. We got to move. There's a lost and dying world, we got to move. We got to move here, we got to move in Darien, we got to move around the world, we got to get the gospel there. We can't sit back, we have to move. Your neighbors need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your kids need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to move. And then this is what the Bible says. And wherever they do not receive you, and when they leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them, meaning not everybody's going to believe. So prepare yourself. If you're one that sits around and goes, man, I keep sharing the gospel everywhere and nobody's believing, shake off the dust. Just keep going. There's somebody there that God is preparing the soil for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We just have to follow them. And then note what we did in verse six. And they departed and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. That's the response for us this morning. That's a response of faith for you and I to go. We have what we need. We have what we need. We have the power. We have the authority of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Now we need to trust him and go. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. I pray that we will respond well, Lord, to this message, that it will be an encouragement to us as a church. God, I love you and I thank you for these words. It's been such an encouragement for me this week. Lord, I want to double down. I want to double down in advancing the gospel and making disciples. God, let us come out of this COVID joyful, thankful, but let us get busy. Let us get working. There's work to be done. It's not enough to observe. We have to put into practice what we've learned. In your precious name we pray, amen.